All right, it was good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 34? Exodus chapter 34. Last week we got as far as verse 8. But let's back up and take a closer look at verses 5 to 7 because they're really pivotal in uh, talking about the character of God. So let me read them. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Now Moses is up on Mount Sinai. And uh, he wants to know God in a deeper way. So God's about to reveal uh, much of his character to Moses here and to all of us, of course. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Of course, the name of the Lord, as we said last week, is synonymous with his character. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So first of all, it says, The Lord, the Lord God. Of course, L-O-R-D, capital letters, that's the name of God a sacred name, of course, known as the Tetragrammaton, four letters, uh, which in English we pronounce Jehovah or most often Yahweh, but it comes from uh, the Hebrew YHWH, the Tetragrammaton. And as we have already talked about a couple months ago, and we actually looked at his name in detail, but let me review quickly. The word is actually a verb. Yahweh is actually a verb. It means to become or to be. And the idea is that God wants to be or to become to us whatever we need. That's why he chose to call himself by a verb, his name, which then he often couples with a noun to give us an idea of what he is to many and to us, obviously. But we read in the Old Testament, you know, Yahweh or Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is our peace. We read Jehovah Jireh, the Lord is our provider. Jehovah Nissi, the Lord is our victory. Jehovah Rohi, the Lord is our shepherd. We all love that one, don't we? But the greatest of all is Jehovah Shua, which means the Lord is our salvation. And we all know that the Hebrew name Joshua and the Greek name Jesus are the same. Okay, one is in the Hebrew, the other is Greek. But they both mean Jehovah Shua or the Lord is salvation. The Lord has become our salvation, the greatest need that we had. We all think we have these great needs, and some of them are pretty important needs. However, the greatest need that man has ever had was the need to be saved. And so God came down from heaven, became a man, and died in our place in the person of Jesus, our Yeshua. That's a contraction. Our Jesus, Yeshua, the Lord has become our salvation. But God goes on and says that, you know, his name is also merciful. This is who he is. Merciful, a better translation would be full of compassion or tenderly pitiful. God tenderly pities us, okay? I don't know about you, but I need a lot of pity. But um, the same word was also used regarding Israel in the Exodus in Psalm 78, verse 38. I'll read it to you. But he being Full of compassion. That's the word merciful that we have in our New King James. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity. He pitied them. 
and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. The psalmist says, God has not dealt with us according to our sin. I mean, he's pretty gracious. If he really dealt with us according to everything we deserve, none of us would be here. The word gracious, all right, he is gracious, comes from the idea to bend or stoop in kindness to an inferior or to give or bestow favor or blessing upon the undeserving. That's grace, getting what we don't deserve. One scholar said, and I quote, there is no greater word in the language than the word that stands for the undeserved free gift of love of God in salvation. That's the greatest love God has ever expressed. The idea behind the word long-suffering means that God is slow to anger. God is slow to... Aren't you glad God is not a hothead who loses his cool just at the drop of a hat? He is slow to anger. He doesn't have a short fuse. He's utterly patient, not only with his kids, but really he's utterly patient with the unbelieving world around us. Because 2 Peter 3, 9, Peter said, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. But is long why hasn't God wiped everybody out? You know, why hasn't God brought judgment? We look around at this world we live in, and it's like, Lord, why are you letting this stuff continue? Because I'm long-suffering. I'm very patient. Um, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It also says he abounds, or he's abounding in goodness. That word comes from the Hebrew word that is often translated loving-kindness, steadfast love and also loyal love loyal love we'll talk about that more in a second the word truth there abounding in goodness and truth is also translated faithfulness in other translations keeping mercy for thousands the word for mercy there in the hebrew is kesed it's the same word translated goodness in verse 6 the word is the Hebrew word for basically covenant love or loyal love. We have entered into a covenant with God, and God loves us as his covenant people. Uh, although the wording is not identical, uh, verse 7 seems to echo the second commandment, which we studied uh, a few months ago. Uh, Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6, God said, You shall not bow down to them, other gods, nor serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. The covenant people of God, including and especially the new covenant people, which we are all a part of that group, uh, are promised by God because we have this special relationship. We are promised to continuously see his covenant love, patience, faithfulness from generation to generation. There are some people who say that, yes, God loves the whole world, right? The Bible says God is love. God loves the whole world. But they say God doesn't love unbelievers like he loves believers. Well, I agree and I disagree with that. God is love. God, the, the amount of love that God pours out, or the kind of love, I should say, uh, is not greater on believers than unbelievers. The issue is how much God can demonstrate his love towards a person. Uh, I've used the illustration before. Bear with me. Cindy and I 
love our children with all our hearts. When they were little and they disobeyed or they were rebellious, we still loved them with all our hearts, but we couldn't bless them in certain ways. Couldn't take them out for ice cream, you know? Couldn't do things with them that couldn't demonstrate our love to them because of their rebellion. The love was still there. It just the, the, our ability to demonstrate that love was hindered. Remember what Jude said to uh, end his little epistle? Keep yourselves in the love of God. You read that, and we've talked about this, but you read that and you might be prone to think, well, I need to keep myself lovable, right? I mean, keep yourself in the love of God. I got to keep myself lovable. So God looks down on me and says, well, he's so cute and cuddly. I just can't. I just got to bless him. No, that's really not what it's all about, all right? Um, God's love is unconditional. He loves sinners like just as much as he loves saints. But when Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God, he's basically saying what we just said. Keep yourself in a place of obedience so that God can continue to demonstrate how much he loves you. But we know that that love is always being poured out on his covenant people. I mean, because we're in a a special place where we have yielded to him. He is our God, and we want to obey him. And as we do, God continues to bless our lives. Now, he goes on to say in verse 7, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And this kind of goes along with what we just talked about, how God, you know, loves his covenant people in a way where he's always promising that, you know, we, he will forgive our iniquity and transgression and sin. I mean, John said if we confess our sin, whatever that sin is, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But this idea of forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, these are three categories of unrighteousness, basically. Iniquity is a word that means to, to turn aside from what is right and good, also translated wickedness in some parts of the Old Testament. The word transgression means deliberate sin, also known as rebellion, uh, and is more defiant in nature. And then the last term, sin, is the most general and refers to any kind of moral failure. The point is that God is willing to forgive any and all kinds of sin. Any and all kinds of sin. One author put it this way, he said, and I quote, Sometimes we feel so weighed down with guilt that we wonder whether there is any way for God to forgive us. We are tempted to feel that what we have done is so evil that we have fallen beyond the reach of his grace. But however we define what we have done, God is willing to forgive, and he forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That covers pretty much everything. Okay. Yeah, he can forgive your sin, but not my sin. No, 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 he can forgive anyone's sin. Paul put it this way in Romans 5.20, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. There is no sin so heinous that if a person comes to Christ and receives him as Lord and Savior, or as a Christian even, they commit something very heinous, come to him that he will not forgive them if they truly mean with all their heart that they are sorry, that they repent. God will never turn them away. Now, for those, though, who refuse to repent and come to him for forgiveness, he has this to say, verse 7, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The idea behind the statement that God will by no means clear the guilty is that he will by no means leave the guilty 
unpunished with regard to eternal punishment, eternal judgment, if they don't repent. You know, you have a lot of people who seem to think that even though they are sinners, that when they stand before God, not having received Christ, that, you know, overall they're a good person, you know, and God will accept them into heaven just because basically they're a good person and the scale of their life will tip in favor of good deeds as opposed to bad deeds. That is a fallacy. That is something the devil has brainwashed people with. The Bible says one sin will keep us out of heaven. Just one. Therefore, all of us need to receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Paul said in Galatians 6, verse 7, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a person sows, that he will or she will also reap. Right? You sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption or hell. If you sow to the Spirit, you will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And sowing just basically gets into the idea of where you are. You sow to the flesh if you're an unbeliever. Because you're investing everything in the flesh. That's where you live. As a believer, you're investing in the Spirit. You want to walk in the Spirit, obey God, uh, be used to build His kingdom, and so on. So it's just a designation of where you are by nature, really. But this idea that I can get to heaven even though I haven't received Christ, even though I don't go to church, we'll say, or read the Bible, which, yeah, you can go to church, uh, heaven without reading the Bible or going to church, although if the Spirit of God is in you, believe me, that will be a fruit. You will want to do those things. Okay, like I didn't want to go to church, read the Bible before I got saved, but it was after I got saved that God really began to put a hunger in my heart for the Word and then a desire for fellowship with God's people and so on. But listen, guys, God is inviting everyone to come. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. God so loved the whole world. See, God is, if I be lifted up, Jesus, I will draw all men to myself. God is inviting all to come to him and receive his son for forgiveness. But those that refuse, well, the wrath of God, listen, will continue to be upon one generation of sinners and a family to the next. It's interesting, one scholar said that the phrase to the third and fourth generation is a common Semitic idiom to express continuance. That those who continue in sin without repentance, those families will continue to be under the wrath of God, the judgment of God. But if at any time anybody in that family receives Christ, then they will be taken from a family of Adam, placed in the family of God. And as such, you know, their sins are washed away. The wrath of God no longer abides on them, but now the blessings of God, correct? And there is no, therefore no condemnation to those who are now in Christ Jesus. So verse 8, So Moses made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. Then he said, now, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, uh, even though we are a stiff... Now Moses is acknowledging. We're a stiff-necked people, Lord. I acknowledge that. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. And he, the Lord, said, Behold, I make a covenant. Now, he's already made this covenant. He is reaffirming it. All right. Behold, basically, I am going to reaffirm the covenant I made with you earlier. Before all the, your people, I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among whom... Uh, you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. 
Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst, but you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifices to their gods, and one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. So here God is reaffirming, as I said, the covenant he made with his people. As we've already talked about, this was a covenant of exclusivity and fidelity. Listen, as in any marriage covenant. That's essentially what we have here. God was proposing a covenant of marriage to the nation. And henceforth, they would come to be called by him the wife of Jehovah. Unfortunately, he would go on to call them the rebellious wife or the adulterous wife of Jehovah. Because they did not keep this covenant of fidelity. Jealousy, as we have already defined earlier in this study, uh, is a righteous response toward the one you've entered into a marriage covenant with when another is trying to come between you or trying to take them from you. Look, it's absolutely legitimate for a husband to be jealous for his wife when he sees another man flirting with her or trying to woo her away from him as her husband. And the same is true with God. Let me quote to you one more time what Alan Redpath said, which we quoted when we were looking at this idea of God being a jealous God. Alan Redpath said, and I quote, God's jealousy is love in action. Jealousy is not a sin. We talked about that. Some people think that jealousy is a sin. How can God be a jealous God? Because then God would be a sinner. No, no, no. Jealousy is not a sin. If it leads you to some violence towards somebody, that would be a sin. But jealousy, as Redpath rightly says, is God's love in action. He refuses to share the human heart with any rival, not because he is selfish and wants us all for himself, but because he knows that upon that loyalty to him depends our very moral life. God is not jealous of us. He is jealous for us, end quote. And that jealousy is, is an expression of his love because he only wants what's best for us. And walking with him and being faithful to him is going to produce the best life possible. Now, tragically, as we just alluded to, Israel did not heed these warnings. And they did, in fact, become involved in Canaanite worship practices, which were nothing more than sexual orgies to various pagan deities. And they even intermarried um, the Canaanites. That was a big problem in Israel, which eventually led to their exile from the land for 70 years. Remember that, the Babylonian captivity? There were several reasons for that captivity, but one of them was that God's people had intermarried with the Canaanites, who had then corrupted God's people with their pagan practices. Now, when they came back from Babylon... They had to, uh, well, as a condition of coming back, they had to put away all their foreign wives 
uh, mostly the men, but I would imagine some of the women married foreign guys as well. Uh, they had to put all these away and uh, become faithful again to the Lord. Uh, that lasted for a while, but then they began to slowly get back into some of these practices. And uh, whereas Ezra, when he came and saw what the people were doing, getting back into the very same practices that they had been judged for, intermarrying with the Canaanites or unbelievers, he sat down and wept. And the people loved him and came and saw him weeping. And he was a priest. And, you know, why are you weeping? Because you're doing the very thing God had judged you for in the past. You know, and I'm brokenhearted about it. And so they, you know, said, well, we'll, we'll change. We'll change. Okay. Uh, then after Ezra came Nehemiah, and some of them had gotten back into some of these things. Well, Nehemiah was a different kind of a leader. Or Ezra was kind of soft and sensitive, and he wept at the people's sins. Nehemiah was a tough guy. He saw you sin, and he grabbed you by the collar, slapped you around a little bit, pull your beard, get right with God. I'm more the Ezra type than I am the Nehemiah type. But, but this is, God had to judge them for these very things. Now, verse 17, God says, you shall make. Now, again, he's reviewing the terms of the covenant. We've already studied these, so I'm not going to explain them again. We've already looked at them, okay? But verse 17, you shall make no molded gods for yourself. So knock it off with the golden calf stuff. All right? No more golden calves. No more idols. All right? The feast of unleavened bread you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, which was a, a symbol of holiness once a year. But they were to walk in holiness every day of the year, of course. But um, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you in the appointed time of the month of Abib, for in the month of Abib you came out of out from Egypt. Uh, all that open the womb are mine. And every male firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep, but the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break his neck. A donkey was an unclean animal, but they were beasts of burden, so they were useful. God says, well, uh, you can redeem it for your use in your farm and ranch, but... Uh, only if you give me a lamb. If you're not going to redeem it, though, it's unclean. You've got to break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. And you can't break the neck of a, of a, of a son. Okay, <laughs> you know, No, no, you had to redeem uh, the firstborn son with, uh, I think, with half a shekel of silver. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but the seventh day you shall rest in plowing time and in harvest you shall rest, and you shall observe the Feast of Weeks of the first fruits of wheat harvest and the Feast of Ingathering at the year's end or at the great fall harvest time. Three times in the year, all your men shall appear before the Lord. This is every adult, 20 years old and above, adult males that I believe somewhere I read that live within 20 miles of Jerusalem. You, anybody can come. But those who live within 20 miles, adult men, were required by law to be at these three main feasts. Verse 24, For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times a year. Uh, and the idea was, again, he talks about uh, unleavened bread, what was one of the main feasts. And then roughly 50 days later was the Feast of Pentecost. That was another major feast they were required by law to appear uh, at in Jerusalem. Uh, that was about uh, very late spring, early summer. And then in the fall, you had the Feast of Tabernacles. 
uh, also called the Feast of Ingathering because it was at that time the great fall harvest took place. So those three, Unleavened Bread, Pentecost, and the Feast of the Tabernacles were the three main feasts they were required by law uh, to come to Jerusalem every year to observe. Verse 25, You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven. Leaven is a type of sin. You can't put leaven in your bread and offer it to God with blood. Okay, that would be... Uh, Leaven is a type of sin, so that's why you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, a holy feast, okay, sinless. But you shall not uh, offer uh, the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, nor shall you, excuse me, nor shall the sacrifice of the Feast of the Passover be left until morning. So there was no leftovers with the Passover lamb. Once it was eaten on Passover, you couldn't keep it and, uh, you know, have leftover sandwiches and that kind of thing the next day. Uh, had him burned up okay verse 26 the first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the lord your god you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk then the lord said to moses write these words for according to the tenor of these words i have made a covenant with you and with israel so he was there with the lord 40 days and 40 nights he neither ate bread nor drank water and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So here the Lord is reviewing the terms of the covenant once again. He's renewing the covenant, reaffirming it. Of course, Moses was up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And at one point, you know, they began to worship the golden calf. God says, get down. Your people have corrupted themselves. He comes down and sees them dancing lewdly and, and, and around this golden calf, takes the two... Uh, stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on them and throws them down the base of Sinai. They smash. He comes down there and he makes them grind that golden calf to powder, puts it in water, makes them drink it. Okay, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, but then he goes back up to the Lord and says, Now come back up, make two more tablets, cut them out, bring them back up, and I'll write on them again the Ten Commandments. Of course, God was reaffirming all these terms, all the laws he had already talked about in chapters. 20 to 23 but he's repeating them here but um we read in verse 29 now it was so when moses came down from mount sinai this would be now the second time um, and the two tablets of the testimony were in moses hand when he came down from the mountain that moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him with the lord and when aaron and all the children of israel saw moses Behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Now, Moses had been up there, as I said, for a second 40-day, 40 40-night 40 period in the presence of God. And while he was there in the presence of God during this time, something remarkable happened. He seems to have absorbed some of God's glory, and it says his face shone. Well, the Hebrew verb, verb for shone literally means shot forth beams shot forth beams okay uh it's interesting that that hebrew word is spelled very much like another hebrew word a noun uh, a word for horn h-o-r-n because of that the latin vulgate mistranslates this word shown and translates it horns that's why in a lot of medieval pictures of Moses, they painted him with horns. As he was like wearing a, 
a couple of horns as he came down from Sinai. That's actually uh, a mistake based on the fact that the Vulgate mistranslated a word that looked very similar to the word shot forth beams or, or shown, instead mistaking it for the word for horn. So if you see pictures of Moses, you know, painted by some of these, you know, Renaissance painters and all, and you say, well, why is he wearing horns? Well, you'll know why, okay? But here's something interesting, guys. It's interesting that Moses didn't realize his face was shining with God's glory, but the people saw it, right? The same is true with us. The more time we spend in God's presence, the more we will radiate with God's glory. We may not realize it, but others will. Just like when you don't spend time with God as you should, the old nature begins to come out. You begin to revert back to what you were before you got saved in the way you think, talk, jokes you may tell. When we spend time in God's presence, we may not realize it, but something of God gets imparted to us. Oh, I know we all have the Holy Spirit within us. I understand that. He never leaves us. But when you spend time in God's presence on a regular basis, you begin to become like him. Okay, you begin to become like him. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.18, you are transformed from glory to glory by just spending time in his presence. You become more and more like Christ. Verse 31, Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. When Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. All right, well, we understand pretty much, but as Moses goes into the presence of God, his face begins to radiate again. He comes out and initially lets the people see his face, and they see this, his face is shining, but he quickly puts a veil over his face. And this happened every time he spent time in God's presence. His face would begin to shine again. He'd come out. People would see his face radiate with the glory of God, but he would quickly put a veil over his face. Why? Why did he do that? Well, he didn't do it because the people were frightened. Paul tells us he did it because the glory was fading away. Turn to 2 Corinthians 3. And we would tend to not make a big deal out of this if Paul the Apostle hadn't brought it up and made a big deal out of it. Why did Moses cover his face with a veil? Paul tells us. 2 Corinthians 3.13 Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face, listen, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Interesting. Apparently Moses knew, maybe God revealed it to him, no doubt, but apparently Moses knew that the glory of the covenant Israel had just received from the Lord, the Mosaic Covenant, was temporary. And 
would fade away, which is why Moses' face began to lose its radiance uh, after a while. He'd come out from the presence of God, his face would be shining. But he knew that after a while, the glory would fade. He didn't want the people to see the glory fading because, what does that mean? You know, um, they would be maybe discouraged. Well, why is Moses' face not shining? Like, why is it, did it stop shining? Well, apparently God spoke to Moses and said, look, the reason your face, the shine is fading away is because this covenant that I'm giving to you is someday going to be replaced with another covenant, a new covenant, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33. We've talked about that numerous times. And as Paul tells us, this is why Moses put on the veil. It prevented the children of Israel from seeing the glory of the old covenant fade away, even though, guys, it would be another 1,500 years for the Mosaic covenant to officially and completely fade away and end when Jesus, of course, the mediator, of a new and better covenant would come. But it's interesting, in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 13, he talks about the word end, right? He says the children of Israel would not steadily look steadily at the end of what was passing away. The word end in the Greek has two meanings, purpose and finish. Purpose and finish. The veil prevented the people from seeing, first of all, the finish of the Mosaic Covenant as it faded away, but the veil also prevented them from understanding the purpose behind the fading glory. Look, the law had just been instituted, and the people were not ready to be told that this glorious system was only temporary. Okay? I mean, God knew it. Apparently, Moses knew it. But he didn't want the people to know that this glorious system, which, by the way, wasn't going to be an easy system to live by. I mean, all these laws and things, they're right on, just, and so on. But, you know, every time I sin, i got to bring an animal sacrifice. Uh, you know, I mean, this system whereby they were able to atone for their sins temporarily cover them, obviously, until uh, we know, until another sacrifice could come, the true sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, um, but this would be a very difficult system to live under. Remember what, uh, was it Paul rebuking Peter? I think it was Paul rebuking Peter. When Peter, you know, was ministering to the Gentiles and some um, big shot, you know, believers came from Jerusalem. Some of the, I guess, big shots, uh, you know, who had received Christ. And, but they were Jewish. And so Peter withdrew from the Gentiles to eat with them. And Paul took him to task and said, Peter, you know, why is, if you being a Jew couldn't live under these commandments? You know, we couldn't even do it. If we as Jews couldn't keep the commandments, the, these laws, why do we try to make the Gentiles keep these laws and so on? This is what God, he's redeemed us out of this system. He's given us a new system. But God did not want them back then to realize that the, the Mosaic covenant, the law, was only temporary and uh, the truth that the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant of law, um, was a preparation for something greater was not yet made known to them. Well, let me read to you what Paul said in Galatians 3. I'll read it to you at the NLT. So you don't have to turn there if you don't want. But I'll read it to you because I think the NLT makes it pretty clear. Galatians 3.19 Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. 
But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child, in other words, the seed, Christ, who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. Now, a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement, but God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. Is there conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, uh, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed, or the new covenant. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. What is Paul really saying? Let me tell you what he's saying. He is saying that until... See, remember what he said in Titus chapter 1? He said the righteous don't need laws. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And we don't want to lie and steal and murder and everything else. He says the law was given for the unrighteous. And God gave the law in part, yes, to show us we were sinners, but to keep our flesh in check. If there weren't consequences to pay for doing things that hurt other people... Forget it. Be jungle law and, and, and survival of the fittest, right? So God gave the law to act as, well, back then, as their guardian to keep them from killing each other by putting restrictions on their flesh until Jesus could come, bring the new covenant whereby we accept him. The Spirit of God moves inside of us. We're born again. We have a new nature, the nature of God. And as such, we don't want to do the things the flesh wants to do. So we don't need laws because we have the law of God written in our hearts, right? The new birth. That's really what he's saying. And back then, these folks had no idea that the law that they had received on Mount Sinai and God speaking and this incredible display of power, that this system was only temporary until the ultimate sacrifice could come, Jesus Christ. But let's one last time look at 2 Corinthians 3, verses 14 to 16. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil, and he's talking about the Jews, and he said, for until this day, now the day he wrote 2 Corinthians, so from Moses until the day Paul wrote this epistle, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. In other words, guys, uh, again, at the time Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, when the Jews read the Old Testament, their scriptures, they didn't discover the secret. The reason why Moses hid um, his face from them by putting on that veil. They didn't realize uh, that the glory of the law was passing away. It was passing glory. And that the law had found its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it's even to this day. Blindness has happened to Israel in part until the fullness of the Gentiles be committed. So even to this, and, and that's not to say God is not working in the Jewish people. Many Jews have received Christ and become Messianic Jews, completed Jews. But for the most part, if you were to go to Israel today, you would find a secular nation. 
Even as God promised uh, in Ezekiel 37 when he said after a very long time he would resurrect a nation. Israel would become a nation again. But they would have no breath in them, the Spirit of God. They would be a secular people, which they are. But when the fullness of the Gentiles, talking about the church in general, when a certain number is reached, and only God knows that number, all of a sudden he says, okay, Gabriel, shout, blow that trumpet, my church, come up here, and we are taken off the earth in the rapture. Then he's going to turn to Israel again, and the blindness, the veil will be lifted. And you will have many, many Jews. In fact, 144,000 that will be converted become Paul the Apostles, I'm convinced. Incredible soul winners who will convert millions and millions to Christ who will then go out themselves sharing the good news of the gospel. But right now, we see that Israel is still, the Jewish people are still blinded for the most part. The veil is still over their face. I like what um, one author said, and he said, and I quote, the veil over the face of those who live by the old covenant blinds their own eyes to the reality and identity of their Messiah, Jesus Christ. That is why you can talk by the hour with Jewish people about the way Jesus perfectly fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, and they still won't see him as their Messiah. There's a veil over their eyes. And because this veil is done away in Christ, it is only as they turn to Christ that they're able to see clearly, end quote. So God has a future plan for Israel. Uh, we are not replacement theology people. We don't believe the church has replaced Israel. We believe the church has been plugged into the program of God because uh, the Jewish people rejected their own Messiah. The church age was, was plugged in uh, between the first then and the second coming. But uh, God still has a plan for Israel and um, when the church is raptured, God will turn to them. They will become the, the primary vehicle or instrument for bringing the gospel to the world during the tribulation period. Um, this veil Moses put over his face. As I was thinking about this, I thought, you know what? Unfortunately, this kind of thing is all too common in the church today among God's people. What am I saying? Well, don't we often do this? We put on a veil or a mask to keep people from seeing that the glory of our relationship with the Lord is fading because we're not spending time in His presence as we should. So we come to church, we want to put on this mask, this, this covering, so to speak. We want to make sure people think we're more spiritual than we are. We're not presenting who we really are. We're hypocrites. The Greek word for hypocrite, hypocrites, was used of an actor on stage. In those days, they would have a stick with a mask attached to it, and they would hold it up to their face. They were playing a part. Anyone who comes to church and acts like everything is wonderful and they're close to God as they ever have been, so on and so forth, well, they're putting a mask on or a veil uh, so that people don't see the glory has faded. Now, what the Bible says is to be real. Confess your sins to one another, James said, right? Get some people that you really trust. I mean, and I have to underscore that. Who are spirit-filled people that you know won't turn, use whatever you reveal against you, but will pray with you and for you. And you be transparent with them so that they can begin to pray. God will begin to work. Humility. God works through humility. He resists the proud. Gives grace to the humble. So he doesn't want us putting on any kind of spiritual covering to hide our true selves 
from others so that they don't see what's really going on because guess what guys uh, they often see what we're trying to hide they often see what they're you know the Holy Spirit reveals it don't don't buy that how's it going oh great wow the word is good Holy Spirit speaks to your heart says don't don't buy that they're not doing well all right Lord I'll start praying for them and then you know often they'll come to you and say you know what I I need to confess something I, I wasn't being honest with you I'm not doing good well praise the Lord uh, you know by confessing your sins one to another God is able then to work right chapter 35 then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them these are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do work shall be done for six days but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you a Sabbath of rest uh, to the Lord whoever does any work on it shall be put to death you shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Now, guys, this is why Friday, or listen to me, any day before the Sabbath came to be known as the day of preparation. Of course, every Saturday was a Sabbath, so every Friday became a day of preparation. But they had high Sabbaths. Uh, the, the day before the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a high Sabbath. All right, I think it was Tabernacles as well. Started with a high Sabbath, ended with a Sabbath. The idea was that the day before the Sabbath, of course, again, Friday, every Friday was a day of preparation. You couldn't, uh, God forbid them from lighting a fire, or which meant from cooking food. So the day before the Sabbath became the day of preparation, which all food preparation uh, had to be done before the Sabbath started, right? To this day, the Orthodox Jews won't turn on a light switch on the Sabbath because that's to do work, can't do any work on the Sabbath. But also, to do so, they believe, is to start a fire in a light bulb. Okay, so you turn on a light switch, the filament begins to glow, it's hot, it's a fire, you're kindling a fire. So how do they get around it? Well, they put all their lights on timers. So that when the Sabbath comes, things just start turning on by themselves. They're not doing it. They're not technically kindling a fire doing any work. They've set this up before the Sabbath so that they can have light. You know, isn't it interesting how religious people can get around God's laws? They keep the letter of the law, but violate the spirit of the law. You know, we're all guilty. We were all raised in church, pretty much, most of us. We, we all know how to play the game, right? Verse 4, And Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering to the Lord, Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light, and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. Notice how the Lord commanded that their offering to him was only to be done out of a willing heart a willing heart second corinthians 9 verses 7 and 8 nlt paul said you must each decide in your heart how much to give and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure that's what we never pressure you guys to give i mean you know there are some people who are very gifted at putting pressure on people to give money some pastors are very good at it. our tv evangelists but even if we did do that and you gave, 
you probably would be giving grudgingly, guilting you into it, and you giving out of guilt does not bless the heart of God. So don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. One pastor I know said this, and I quote, Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring an offering to the Lord. I like that. I sometimes hear preachers say, give until it hurts. But that's not the Lord. If it hurts to give, don't do it, because Paul tells us the Lord loves a cheerful, or literally, a hilarious giver. We just read that. As Jesus sat against the wall in the temple, we are told he watched not what people gave, but how they gave, Mark 12, 41. The Lord loves a cheerful giver because when I give cheerfully, I am freed from my fleshly, selfish, small tendencies and become more like him, Jesus, in the process. That is why Moses asked for those with willing hearts to give. How much would those with willing hearts give? Well, by today's standards, approximately $1 billion worth of gold and silver alone. <laughs> That's a big offering, end quote. Uh, I think... When you ask God to work in people's hearts that they give, and we don't put pressure and try to coerce and guilt them into it, but we just pray, Lord, work in people's hearts, that they give out of a joyful heart. I believe people give so much more than if we guilt them into giving, which God doesn't accept anyways. All right, all right verse 10. All who are gifted artisans among you shall come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent, its covering, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets, the ark and its poles with the mercy seat and the veil of the covering, the table and its poles, uh, all its utensils and the showbread, also the lampstand for the light, its utensils, its lamps, and the oil for the light, the incense altar, its poles, its, uh, the anointing oil, the sweet incense, and the screen for the door of the entrance of the tabernacle. The altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating, its poles, all its uh, utensils, and the laver with its base. The hangings of the court, its pillars, their sockets, and the screen for the gate of the court. The pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court, uh, and their cords. The garments of ministry for ministering in the holy place. The holy garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister as priests. And all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. Then everyone came whose heart was stirred, and everyone whose spirit was willing. And they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting, for all its service, and for the holy garments. They came, both men and women, as many as had a willing heart, and brought earrings and nose rings, rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold, that is, every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord, and every man with whom was found blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hairs, a goat's hair, red skins of rams, and badger skins brought them. Everyone who offered an offering of silver or bronze brought the Lord's offering. And everyone with whom was found acacia wood for any work of the service brought it. All the women who were gifted artisans spun yarn with their hands and brought what they had spun of blue, purple, and scarlet and fine linen. And all the women whose heart, whose heart stirred with wisdom spun yarn of goat's hair. The rulers brought onyx stones. Now notice the rulers now, the leaders, brought onyx stones 
and the stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate, and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. The children of Israel brought a free will offering to the Lord. All the men and women whose hearts were willing to bring material for all kinds of work which the Lord by the hand of Moses had commanded to be done. What a beautiful thing to see the people of God giving with a willing, joyful heart. And once again, guys, this is the only kind of giving that God is pleased with, the only kind of giving he will honor and bless. And notice once again, the leaders didn't merely say, oh, I'm glad the people are giving. Isn't it wonderful the people are giving? No, the leaders gave the most. They gave the precious stones. Uh, I believe that what is being said here is they actually gave the most to the work of the Lord. And I think that's fitting. I think pastors, you know, elders, deacons, if their church has them, ought to set the tone. Uh, well, but people don't know what I give. I'm not supposed to let people know what I give. That's right. If you give in secret, God the Father will reward you openly. And I believe that it gets into the area of, look, as leaders, we should set the example. We should be the ones giving the most to God. And I believe as we give to God, God will place it on people's hearts to be generous too. I think that as a pastor goes or as the elders go, so goes the congregation. I've seen many churches where the pastors seemed a little on the greedy side. There were churches always struggling. But churches where the pastors were very giving people, uh, that God seemed to put it on the hearts of the people to be generous as well. But Paul makes something, mentions something very important as we bring chapter 35 in tonight's study to a close. He mentions an important principle in giving to God. We're talking about, you know, how the leaders uh, gave probably more than anybody else, but the people here gave very generously. And uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 5 and 6, So I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready. But I want it to be a willing gift, not one given grudgingly. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. And Paul says that in the context of giving. If you sow sparingly from your resources into the kingdom, then you're going to only be blessed sparingly. Okay, But if you're generous with the work of God, as the farmer generously plants seeds Throughout a large area of field, well, the more you plant, the more God will give in the way of blessings. All right? Verse 30, And Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord is called by name uh, Bazalel, uh, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, uh, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding, in knowledge and all manner of workmanship to design artistic work to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to uh, work in all manner of artistic workmanship. And he has put in his heart the ability to teach in him. And Aholiab, the son of Asimach, of the tribe of Dan, he has filled them with a skill to do all manner of work of the engraver and the designer uh, and the tapestry maker in blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine linen, and the weaver, those who do every work, and those who design artistic works. Bottom line, it's what Paul said many centuries later, whom the Lord calls, he what? He equips. So 
So if God is calling you to do a work, he will give you the grace by his spirit to do the work. All right? To do the work. And uh, you don't have to, you know, I can't teach. Um, I, I can't be a pastor. That's okay. Uh, what can you do? Uh, I pour concrete for a living. That's great. You know, we can use that. As God begins to expand the church, we can certainly use that. There are always people in the body that have certain giftings that God will use if they make themselves available. And that's what's going on here. These people had a willing heart to give, but they also had a willing heart to serve. And when you have those two things going together, watch out. Because it's going to be an awesome thing. Because where people have a heart for God to give and to serve, wow. God will use that in an incredible way. All right. Next week, God willing, we'll start chapter 36. And we'll come across something that I believe has only happened once in the history of God's people. Uh, you'll see what that is next time. Come on back. We'll talk about it. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for our time in your word tonight, Lord. And we just pray that you will give us grace to take from our study tonight one main idea. You only want giving and service done out of a willing, joyful heart. If we can't serve you, Lord, if, if coming to church and doing whatever ministry we're, we're doing, if we do it begrudgingly and complaining, we'd be best to stop doing it altogether because you're not honored by it, you're not blessing it. But Lord, give us grace when we come to church to do whatever ministry you've called us to. That we come with joy, excitement. I get to serve God today. And we do it out of that kind of enthusiasm and love and joy, Lord, that honors you and uh, you bless in return. So, Lord, we ask that you would continue to work in this church. That we would be a church, Lord, that gives freely, uh, joyfully, and serves you with willing hearts as well. That you might use us in greater ways for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.